This is the Deeper Hearts Club. My name is Kate Harleen. I'm a licensed psychotherapist and the creator and host of this podcast. I'm here to share insights I've gained from thousands of hours of sitting with people who are struggling, all with the hope that it will help you and me live better by going deeper. To begin, I'd like to tell you the tale of the tragic disappearance of Cottonball. Cottonball was my stuffed bunny and one of my most beloved friends as a child. If you asked anybody who knew me when I was a kid, they would know about Cottonball. Cottonball's fur was black and white and her nose was made with little pink stitches. She was just a little bunny and she fit perfectly in my fist. I very much believed she was alive and just as real as you and me. She was my constant companion around the house, out to play with friends, and I always brought her to school. I drew pictures of her, I wrote stories about her, I made habitats for her, and I slept with her in the palm of my hand every night. Tragedy struck in the summer of 1995, the height of the cotton ball era. I was seven, and my family and I were living for the summer in Leuven, Belgium, because my dad, a European historian, was a guest professor at a university there. One evening, we had gone out for a walk, and I'd brought cotton ball with me, of course, as was my standard practice, when, all of a sudden, I became aware that she was no longer with me. Panic. Where was she? We checked every pocket and bag, we retraced our steps— And as I responded frantically to all standard inquiries of, when did you last see her? And, are you sure you brought her? I could feel the doom gradually distilling upon me. What if she's lost and gone forever? Our searching was in vain. Cottonball was nowhere to be found. Crestfallen, I returned to the apartment to try one more thing. I drew her black and white with pink nose mugshot on several sheets of computer paper, and my dad helped me to write in Dutch something like, Lost, Cotton Ball, please contact me if found, with our apartment number, and I posted them all over the university housing complex where we were staying. No one ever contacted me. It was a completely foreign and unsettling feeling, the gloom that descended upon me in the wake of this irreversible tragedy. A wrestle and reckoning with an irreplaceable loss. How could she just be gone? Wasn't there some way to go back in time and change the course of events? Some way to bring her back? During my early stages of mourning, I remember lying on the back bench seat of the car. My parents were in the front as we drove somewhere in our compact rental Peugeot. A Beatles CD was in the player, as it often was, but this time, when a certain track came on, It felt as if Paul McCartney was singing directly to me. And when the broken-hearted people living in the world agree, there will be an answer, let it be. The broken-hearted people. That's what this was. And I wasn't the only one. Apparently, there were other people who knew what a broken heart felt like. For though they may be parted, there is still a chance that they will see. There will be an answer.
answer, let it be. For though they may be parted, that was us. Cottonball and I were parted. It was horrible. There is still a chance that they will see. I didn't know what it meant, but it felt like some sort of reassurance. If nothing else, I knew that whatever they were singing about was what I was feeling, and that felt good. I cried quietly, looking up at the sky and clouds zipping by out the car window. There are only a few things I feel I could say with any certainty are universal realities and concerns for all human beings. When I say a few things, I really mean four, but we'll get to that in a minute. One of those universal realities and concerns is change, which includes death and loss and all versions of transience. And it is the one I was grappling with when I lost Cotton Ball. Though I may not have consciously realized at the time, how I felt when I was lying in the car and weeping to a Beatles song was about much more than just Cotton Ball. I think it had awakened a deeper realization. If Cotton Ball could be lost and gone forever, then what did that mean about everyone and everything else that I loved? Before we go on, let me introduce myself a bit more. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and more specifically, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I own and operate a private therapy practice called Therapy Collective in Salt Lake City, Utah, USA, where I live with my husband, Brian, and our children, Matilda and Eddie. I've practiced social work and therapy in a variety of settings, including at a domestic violence shelter, as a school social worker, on Utah's suicide prevention hotline, and as a therapist for people of refugee background who are survivors of torture. These days, I focus on my private practice, where I work one-on-one in therapy with a variety of clients who've sought me out as their therapist for one reason or another. They come for 50-minute therapy sessions, usually once a week or every other week. Sometimes we work together for a few months, sometimes for years. When you sit almost every day with people who are struggling or suffering in some way, and you've done so with hundreds of different people for thousands of hours over the course of many years, you begin to get a sense of what humans tend to struggle with and suffer from. Even people with vastly different backgrounds, worldviews, and life experiences, you see that there are common denominators and themes that emerge again and again when people are trying to figure out life. And what these themes are, are those deeper, underlying, universal realities and concerns that all humans reckon with. I think they can be boiled down into four categories. One, change, as we've been discussing. Two, choice. Three, connection. And four, core concerns. Because they all begin with the letter C, and because they represent all that deep stuff, I call them the deep C's. C's as in the plural of the letter C, but it's also a fun play on words. Each of these deep seas will get a lot more attention in future episodes, so listen on for more details. But for now, all you need to know is that they are the four categories that I have found that human concerns can be summarized into. When I'm working with a therapy client, I'm always curious about how what they've come to therapy with connects back to one or more of these deep seas, because it always does. 
Sometimes people come to therapy because they are overtly struggling with one of those deep seas, like they're grieving the death of a loved one, or trying to figure out their own identity or a sense of meaning in their life, or struggling with relationships, or feeling trapped by their circumstances. Other times, people begin therapy with the approach that they just need to fix XYZ thing and ASAP. But when they're honest with themselves and willing to explore, they often discover that deep down, they are trying to figure out how to navigate one or more of the deep seas. Therapy has come to be tied to the domain of mental health, but so much of what I see in my therapy office is so not captured by just that one domain. Navigating the deep seas is called just being human. Whatever initially brings a client in, what I see time and again in my therapy office is that struggle and suffering with the deep seas exposes a person's deep yearning for more wisdom and resilience to meet life with. In a nutshell, what they are yearning for is a deeper heart. I believe that a deeper heart comes from really acquainting with and eventually befriending the deep seas. By acquainting with the deep seas, I mean learning what they even are and becoming more conscious of how they affect you. And by befriending them, I mean engaging with them willingly and even believing that they could have something to teach you. When you do this, when you can navigate the deep seas with a deeper heart, you emerge feeling that, even given the struggles of existence, it is a gift to exist. My entire life, like, I would say, all of us, I've grappled with the deep seas. The tragic disappearance of Cotton Ball was only the beginning. And it's in large part due to my own navigation and misnavigations of the deep seas that I've come to believe in the power of better acquainting with and befriending them, and have experienced how this leads to a deeper heart. No one expects a doctor to never get sick, or a teacher to know everything under the sun, and it's also true that no one should think that therapists can nip suffering in the bud. I'm a pilgrim on the journey of life, just like you. I like the term coined by the great psychotherapist Carl Jung to refer to therapists. Wounded healers. Actually, my husband and I are both therapists, and sometimes people assume that that means that our relationship must be the model of health, and that if, gasp, disagreements do come up, they are surely smoothly and efficiently resolved with a perfect symphony of I statements and empathetic listening. As if, sometimes we are the perfect model of what not to do. Though, to give us some credit, we do usually try to practice healthy communication and conflict resolution skills. Anyway, the point is, therapists don't have it all together, but good therapists do know that to be good therapists, they have to continually practice coming to know the mystery of themselves to bring to consciousness that which has been unconscious, to gain insight into their own thinking, feeling, and behavior, and continually evolve. I spend a great deal of time trying to understand why people do what they do, say what they say, think what they think, and feel what they feel. And my best source of insight into the human experience of existence, my most intimate laboratory, is me. Occasionally, a client has been disillusioned by my humanness. If I can make mistakes, or even let them down, or if I have struggled or do struggle with similar things as them, well, how can I be in any position to help them? 
But the majority of the time, the more real and human I am, the more people trust me. And the more conscious insight I have into myself and my human experience, the more helpful I can be to my clients. Because as Carl Jung wrote, quote, a good half of every treatment that probes at all deeply consists in the therapist examining herself. For only what she can put right in herself can she hope to put right in her patient. Part of my practice of trying to put right in myself is, surprise, going to therapy. And a couple years ago now, I found myself in my therapist's office musing to him that I thought I was experiencing a lot of sublimated death anxiety. He gave me an expertly timed and tilted nod that we therapists have so much occasion to practice, which of course meant, I see, go on. I continued to explain. The gist of it was this. I had some career-related turmoil at the time, and the overall feeling it left me with was incredible impatience and anxiety about doing my life right. Like, since the career path I'd planned on wasn't panning out very well, I felt like I had to figure out exactly how to do something really, really meaningful in some other way, and I had to do it now. In my own psychological digging around in myself, I had some sense that my anxiety wasn't exclusively about all this career stuff at face value. The more complete picture of what was going on was I had recently graduated from the third decade of life, and I was increasingly aware of how transient my life really was. And so my career-related decisions felt like they had overwhelming implications for the path I'd follow for the rest of my life, which life I was less under the illusion would extend on forever and ever. Amen. That's sublimated death anxiety. It was too scary in an undermine-the-normalcy-of-daily-life kind of way to let myself admit to the deep, deep anxiety I was carrying around about my own mortality. So I was sublimating that anxiety directing it towards something more normal or acceptable to have anxiety about. Like, I'm not sure what career decision I should make. Because it's not as customary or comfortable to admit that my anxious feelings were actually my inside screaming, I'm going to die and eventually be completely forgotten and entirely disintegrated, just like all the other billions of people who've already lived and died and who no one remembers and have all turned to dust. So I better figure out the exact right, perfect thing to do with my life because time is running out. You could say I was struggling to peacefully navigate the deep sea of change, which is the intersection of these two realities. One, that we humans desire continuity, and two, everything and everyone are transient. As I started to better acquaint myself with how afraid I was of my own mortality, I began to realize just how much I had thought and worried about death over the course of my life to that point, and my therapist and I started to talk about it all. For example, I shared with him my frequent concern, so oft a companion of mine since childhood I had hardly questioned it being slightly excessive, that every time I said goodbye to my parents or my partner or another loved one, it could be the last time I see them, since they might die a horrible and sudden death in, for example, a horrible and sudden car crash. It would be in the back of my mind nigh every time we parted ways. I can trace at least some of the origins of these anxieties to, one, the tendency of my favorite childhood author, Roald Dahl, to create child protagonists whose parents die unexpectedly and tragically, and two, a story meant to be inspirational, told to my class by my fifth grade science teacher of all people, in which long ago, in prairie times, a husband and wife bicker before the husband leaves on his horse and cart for a long journey. Well, he dies somehow and never returns, and the wife has to live with the memory that her last words to her husband were harsh ones. The moral of the story was probably supposed to be something like, don't take your loved ones for granted. 
But the takeaway that very stubbornly stuck to me was, any moment with your loved one very well could be your last. And this isn't even to mention my longtime fear of corpses. I feel a little silly admitting it, but for a long time, I was frequently afraid of finding a dead body, usually in some normal place in my house. Like many fears, not entirely rational, like why in the world would a corpse just randomly be lying on my bed or sitting in my living room, but like all fears, it didn't feel irrational. I regret to say that even as an adult about five years ago, my fear of corpses kept me from paying my respects to the body of a cherished former client of mine who had tragically died of an overdose. I attended her viewing, but I kept my distance from her coffin. I really wish I wouldn't have done that. In my 30-plus years of life so far, there of course have been many deaths of loved ones, including horrible and sudden ones like death-anxious child me was petrified at the thought of. And the changing of life seasons and the passing of time has been both harder and easier to reckon with than it was for me as a child. Through my time in therapy and self-exploration over the last handful of years, whether working through some of the early experiences that helped shape my discomfort with death and transience or more recent adult experiences, I realized that at the end of the day, the fact was that I really needed to start addressing my fear of death instead of continuing to try to ignore or sublimate it. And so, little by little, after becoming better acquainted with my death anxiety and how it was affecting me, I started to try befriending it. I tried to talk more about my feelings around death and transience and to write about it, and I even hosted a death party at my house where some friends came over and we talked about our experiences with death, and I made a mortality meditation room, complete with candles and a fake skull. I promise it wasn't as macabre as it sounds. I've benefited from learning more about how wisdom traditions throughout the ages have recommended keeping your own mortality at the front of your awareness. From the ancient Stoics to the Buddhist practice of Maranasati, or mindfulness of death, and the Latin phrase that Christians used frequently in the Middle Ages, memento mori, which means, remember you will die. These sorts of things have helped me to practice befriending the reality that everything and everyone is transient. And as I have done so, I've honestly started to feel a lot better. And more importantly, I have become more present in my own life. As I've befriended the deep sea of change, I feel like in a way it has befriended me back. It's taught me a lot. For example, my farewells to loved ones are, the majority of the time, no longer riddled with anxiety. When I wave to my parents on their front lawn as I drive away from their house, or I say goodbye to my children and partner as I go out the door to work, I've noticed that my automatic thoughts are less often, what if I never see them again? And more often something like, what a wonder they are in my life at this moment. When I find myself being held hostage by a miniature terrorist, I mean, my toddler daughter, and can take a moment to take a breath and hold the reality of transience near, it reminds me that her toddler years won't last forever, which is both a relief and a nudge to remain present for the limited time that she is so fierce and wild and joyful in a way that only three-year-olds can be. And my fear of corpses, what more potent symbol of death, has all but subsided. Just last month, I sat by a hospital bed where lay the body of my dear elderly friend Liz, as the attending doctor conducted his final exam to officially pronounce her dead. And before leaving the room, I put my hands on her arm and shoulder and looked at her unflinchingly, silently thanking her for the kindness she had shown me and my young family and thinking how I'd think of her whenever I see the beautiful portrait she painted that hangs in the front room of my house. 
Confronted by or reminded of the often difficult to navigate deep seas, again, they are change, choice, connection, and core concerns, and we will go in-depth into each of them in later episodes. We humans are quite skilled at tricking ourselves into believing we can alter or ignore them, like I did, by sublimating and avoiding my discomfort with the deep sea of change. But when it comes down to it, our daily lives are peppered with reminders of them. And this, whether consciously or subconsciously, causes distress. You know what I mean. You've lived with this distress since you left the warm oneness that was your universe as a fetus. Birth may have been your first experience of distress, as primal as it was, the abrupt transition to becoming your own entity, no longer literally connected to another being. Then you got a little older, and in childhood and adolescence, you became more consciously aware of certain things. Like you began to understand that things change and nothing lasts forever. Maybe when your best friend moved away or a beloved grandparent died. You came to learn that there are circumstances that affect you that you did not choose. Like maybe your parents divorced or you inherited a genetic disorder. Eventually you realized that no one fully knows what it's like to be you, no matter how close you felt to your gaggle of best gal friends. Maybe at some point you began to question whether the worldview you inherited really explained the purpose of life. Or you felt unsure sometimes about what makes you you because while you hung out with the preppy girls on your lacrosse team, deep down you always felt like you had more in common with the kids who you saw LARPing during lunchtime at school. So these deep seas and their attendant distress, even since your infancy, childhood, and adolescence, they have permeated your entire experience of existing. And you have seen, and you continue to see, how they can create a lot of discomfort at best and a lot of suffering at worst. What can you do about them? Well, have you ever tried paddling upstream? Like, for a minute, pretend you are a river guide on a whitewater rafting trip, and it's time to pull over for lunch. But, lost in a moment of daydream, you accidentally overshoot the shady sandy bank where you'd been planning to take your rafting group to picnic. No amount of willpower or wishing it were otherwise will change all the forces of erosion and gravity that have led to this river existing as it is, and the water flowing how it is. Which water is currently carrying you further and further from the desirable shady bank? Nor is there any way to will yourself backwards in time, reverse a few minutes, so that instead of daydreaming, you're paying perfect attention and direct the raft in just the right way at just the right time. So, since those are not options, instead, you direct everyone in the boat to grab their oars and tell them to start paddling against the river's flow, to try to go back to the shady bank. Now, I've never been a river guide, but I was once a hiking guide for Americans who had paid big bucks to come trek in the Swiss Alps. So I feel like I know a thing or two about the dynamics of a group of strangers thrown together who spent a lot of money to be out in nature with the expectation that you are going to show them a most excellent and unencumbered time. I'd say it's highly likely that within a matter of moments of furiously trying to paddle upstream, everyone, including you, is showing signs of exhaustion and frustration. 
This is never going to work, screams the CEO from Chicago, from whom you've gotten several whiffs of misogyny already. I'm running out of energy, laments the otherwise very affable schoolteacher, who saved for years to be on this trip. My arms are killing me, wails the pale, atrophy-armed teenager, who's here with his father who's clearly trying to compensate for his emotional distance with an expensive vacation. And despite all this effort, the boat gets no closer to the picnic spot. There's no choice but to abandon the attempt, and when you do, everyone is now not only exhausted, sore, and frustrated, they are also angry, because they now believe they've missed their only chance for an idyllic lunch hour, which is the experience they have paid for, they might remind you. Or, the other option is to stop resisting the realities that have led to where you are now and keep moving with the flow of the river. And lo and behold, you discover that around another bend or two, the river leads right to another beautiful bank, grassy and lush. As you direct the raft to shore, you find yourself smiling a little Mona Lisa smile, feeling that it's ultimately a gift that the river is the way it is, because the river is full of surprises you could have never planned. And after all, if the river were not so unyielding in its power, there would be no whitewater rafting trip to begin with. So what does this have to do with the deep seas of change, choice, connection, and core concerns? Well, the situation that you and I find ourselves in is this. The deep seas are the way things are, and the way things are can be hard to navigate. From my own experiences, and from thousands of hours of working with people in therapy, I see how, when you misnavigate the deep seas, the experience of existing can leave you feeling like metaphorical river guide you, frantically trying to paddle against the river's current, absent from the present, exhausted, frustrated, discontent, resentful, and confused. On the other hand, when you better acquaint yourself with the deep seas and then befriend them, they can still feel uncomfortable, sad, maddening, or whatever else. But it's like you admitting that you will not be lunching at the intended picnic spot and instead accepting the way the river flows, and then actively re-engaging in a new way with it and seeing the ways in which the river is your ally. When you navigate the deep seas with a deep heart like this, you find yourself, despite it all, feeling that it's a gift that existence is the way it is. Because if it weren't, well, there'd be no you to begin with. I'm Kate Harleen, and this is the Deeper Hearts Club podcast. This episode is a prologue to the rest of the podcast. In the coming episodes, we practice engaging with each of the deep seas by hearing from various people about their experiences navigating them. These are called listening episodes. Each listening episode has a counterpart interactive episode. Interactive episodes are an opportunity for you, the listener, to become more than a listener. You are invited to interact with the things we talk about and explore how they can help you to live with a deeper heart. And you are also invited to be an active participant in the Deeper Hearts Club by contributing your thoughts, insights, and experiences to the Deeper Hearts Club share line, or DHC share line. 
The DHC share line is a phone number where any listeners, aka club members, can leave a voicemail, send a voice memo, or send a text message with their responses to and experiences with the podcast content, especially the exercises and prompts found in the interactive episodes. The DHC share line phone number is this. 323-484-1011. We figured out that that happens to transcribe to Dad Hug 101 if that helps you to remember it. Thank you to co-producer, idea consultant, musician, assistant audio engineer, and also my cousin, Cami Whitbeck. And thank you to Brian Andelin, our chief audio engineer. Our theme song is a group effort by Cammie, Brian, me, and, believe it or not, Cammie's and my late grandfather, Lloyd, who was a prolific composer, because we borrowed the chords from one of his songs as the bass for the theme. Each episode finishes with an original song written by Cammie Whitbeck. We hope it feels kind of like how after watching a movie that's made you reflect, you want to keep sitting there while the music plays as the credits roll. Here's this episode's song called Better. I'm glad you're here, and I'll see you next time. After I shut the door Thinking I could ignore Another insight Upon a worried mind Don't think that you know Because you feel Same old thing tonight